I wonder what you thought when you heard that Bible reading. Hopefully you were listening to it and paying attention, not thinking about other things. Maybe you were, maybe you're busy. But maybe you're listening to the passage read, and maybe as it was read, certain things stood out in your mind. I wonder if you just take a moment to think to yourself, and I'm going to ask questions, as to what it was that really struck you about those 12 verses we heard. Because it's my privilege to be able to preach to you, this was the passage I was given, and I must confess, these are the words that really stood out to me as I looked at it. I'm going to do it in the King James Version, because they sound more dramatic. His fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly purge his floor and gather his wheat into the garner, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. It's fearsome stuff. And now it's a theme that's been used for generations to terrify people into going to church. I wonder what your thoughts are on this notion and this method. Is it something that you think should be tackled more often? Because in Campbell Church, it's not something we tend to address directly. Or are you glad that in some sense it's been put on the back burner in many of our churches today? Or is it simply the sort of thing that you don't like to think about? Indeed, when did you last think about it? I don't plan to make anyone feel uncomfortable in this sermon, but I confess to being very uncomfortable with this theme especially when talking about it in public. And looking at this passage, there are different ways that it could be, could be done. There are lots of straightforward ways where we say, John came, predicted Jesus, it all worked out nicely, isn't that great? Let's have a prayer and think about it. But I can't get over the fact that it does say at the very end, he will burn up the chash, chaff with unquenchable fire. So why do I feel uncomfortable with this? Well, maybe it's because I remember as a child moving away from the man who regularly used to stand in Warrington shouting, repent or be damned. Do you remember him, Mum? Yeah. <laughs> he stuck in my mind for years. He was on this little raised wall, and it was very peculiar. Uh, it didn't draw me into the church, I can tell you that for nothing. And maybe it was because as a young man in my 20s, um, I'm now the venerable age 41, so that's why I have a stick and everything. Um, <laughs> The only message I heard from the church was typically some hateful altercation between right-wing American literalists and some unfortunate group onto whom they had cast their glare. It really put me off the notion of Christianity. Maybe it's because I know for certain that shouting words like repent now and quoting a Bible verse from which it came is perhaps the worst possible way to encourage people in this free-thinking world to take their first step into church. Maybe I feel uncomfortable because that's just the way I am, because I'm drawn to think about other things about the message in the Bible. Now, there's many of us here, I recognise most of you, there are some who are visiting, coming for the first time. You'll all be in different positions, you'll all have different views on Christianity. Maybe you're a bit of a doubter, quietly. Maybe you're a full believer embracing the gospel. Maybe you simply don't really believe at all, and you just come for the social convention. There's all sorts of reasons why you might be here. And... It's for this reason I felt it was important to tackle this notion of judgment that comes out so strongly in the passage concerning John the Baptist. Because as we leave this building today, this is the message that much, many in the world hear so clearly and so stridently. And I believe is one of the reasons why people are repelled in some sense from the church. I hope you have some in inkling into why I'm proceeding in this way. There's no attempt to be disrespectful, but it's a very real issue that people who are non-Christian hear this message of judgment and it leaves them cold. 
So as I was thinking and praying about this, how to prepare, a long time ago, obviously. Um, I think it was yesterday afternoon. And <laughs> I decided that the best way forward would be to tackle this issue head on. Because it might have been easy to skirt around this issue, but I often find that tackling these difficult issues head on and facing them directly, having the confidence in my faith to understand that I will be able to tackle them, often leads me to deeper and perhaps unexpected insights. And I hope today I'll be able to share some of these ideas with you. So here we go. Well, it's clear that the story in Matthew 3 fundamentally concerns repentance, judgment, and prophecy. These aren't words which are commonly used today in modern parlance. They seem a little bit anachronistic, perhaps. Maybe they seem too forceful, too dangerous to use. But these are good words, and in many ways, this means that the chapter we've just looked at turns out to be a Bible analyst's heaven, because there is so much that could be done to dig into this passage. So, for example, I'm sure you're all thinking of different ways that you could dig into John the Baptist. One is that we could compare the story of John the Baptist between Matthew and the other Gospels. So what are the textual differences? Who said most? Who said least? What do they all say? Why are these differences there? What do they all mean? Clearly, prophecy is part of the chapter, because he says that he's preparing the way for the arrival of Christ. And so we could look at the prophetic details of the section. We could dig back into the Old Testament. We could look forward into the New. We could even compare, perhaps, if we're feeling very adventurous, with details of the prophecy of John in the Quran, in the section on Mary, if we're feeling very adventurous. There's all sorts of links into the prophecies about St. John the Baptist. We could even focus on the historic figure of John the Baptist, if we felt too uncomfortable with that. We could look at accounts from secular historians, such as Josephus, which describe the actions of John, the historical figure. We could certainly, or at least I could anyway, spend hours looking at the fine points concerning the big terms of repentance, judgment, and prophecy. Just give you a moment to decide which of those that you would focus on if you had given this talk today. Well, I found it very interesting as I looked into this because strident atheist commentators often focus on precisely these aspects. And what they do is they gleefully point out textual and factual inconsistencies and problems with the biblical accounts. And there are many problems, at least in the eyes of people who are trying to prove that it's not a complete, unique, totally consistent book. And it's interesting that those who are determined to prove that it is indeed a literal word-for-word approach to the Bible is correct they respond to these criticisms with fire and with passion. And it seems somehow these vocal atheists and these determined literalists seem to come to the fore in any web search or any documentary or any program, any news article, with their noisy messages standing outside loud and clear. I wonder what outsiders looking into these discussions or these disagreements must be thinking. It's not something that would appeal to someone who is curious, I'm sure. So, after spending some hours trying to piece everything together, and I did find this quite a challenge because the messages were complex and many varied, I wanted to try and find a path through this agreement, and I eventually realized that I was falling into a trap. It was a very seductive trap, but it was the trap of focusing so much on the details and the minutiae and the translations and the whys and wherefores of who was around and the documents and so on, that the overall message of what this passage was saying was at risk of becoming lost. 
It really was a case of not being able to see the wood for the trees. And I feel it's a trap that the people I alluded to in the previous section fall into. They just argue about the details of the trees instead of standing back and saying, let's talk about the wood. So, in the talk this morning, I want to get back to a really big picture concerning John the Baptist and its relevance to us today in Camborne in 2014. So, rather than focus on the fact that John the Baptist was the prophesied voice crying out in the wilderness, I'd rather think, well, okay, so what does it actually mean for me today? Why was John the Baptist a necessary part of the story? Why was he in the wilderness? Why did he eat honey and locusts? Why did he wear a hair shirt and a leather belt? These details about John the Baptist are quite well known. But a question which isn't answered, asked more often is, should we actually listen to John? Should we emulate John and his behavior? The question boils down to, in my sense, of was John needed for that time, or was he needed for all time? After reflecting on this for a while, I came to the conclusion that we might try to experience John the Baptist from the perspective of a first century Jew. Because it's from this perspective that all the key elements of the story become important. And I feel by understanding these key elements as a first century Jew, we can consider which of these elements are still relevant to us today. So what I'm going to ask you to do, you don't have to do this if you don't want to, you can just listen. I suggest you might consider being a Jew in the first century, of a certain type. You could be a child or a priest or whatever you like. But a Jew who's been waiting, always waiting for the Messiah to come, so if you get this image in your mind, perhaps you get comfy for a moment, and then I'll talk you through some of the things this person might be experiencing. And I invite you to really imagine that you're there as a person as I go through the description of the events behind the chapters in Matthew chapter 3. So you're making the long and dusty and hot walk through the wild lands to see and hear this John the Baptist. Perhaps you're a child, an ordinary person, a priest, or maybe a tax collector. Regardless of who you are, you and all those you know have been living for years under the yoke of Roman persecution. You've certainly grown up hearing the long and painful history of how your people have been persecuted, displaced from the land which is their birthright, subject to oppression and slavery, barely surviving attempts at genocide for 2,000 years. When will it all end? But you have hope. You know the prophets of old, prophets proclaiming that God will come and save his chosen people, his special nation, the nation for whom God reserves his love, his bounty, and ultimately, his protection. You know the prophet Malachi, the last great prophet of the Lord. Despite Malachi passing into dust 500 years ago, you remember as you walk with a chill his fiery words. See, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all the evildoers will be stubble. The day that comes shall burn them up. Lo, I will send you the prophet Elijah before the great and terrible day of the Lord comes. You pause for rest, thirsty and hot. In the distance, you can just make out a clamoring crowd along the banks of the River Jordan. 
You can almost sense the excitement, the power in the air. You think back to the time of Malachi. 500 years of oppression. The Greeks, the Persians, and now the hated Romans. Yet you heard excited rumors. A wild man living in the wild lands. A man who, in wearing a hair shirt and leather belt, is the very image of the great prophet Elijah from the past. A man who you are so close to seeing in the flesh. You recall with a thrill the words of the great prophet Isaiah. A voice cries out in the wilderness, preparing the way of the Lord. Is this John, that man, making straight in the desert a highway for our God? Could John really be this man, lifting up every valley, laying low every mountain, and the glory of the Lord will be revealed? You're so close to hearing this Baptist's fiery words for yourself. You know for sure you will go and repent in preparation the coming Messiah who will finally lead you, your people, and the nation of Israel to glory. So, back to 2014. I'm not sure what you would have got from that exercise, but I hope that you got some sense of the message of John being uniquely tailored to that first century Jew who was waiting for Saviour to come. It was exactly the message which would have got the people fired up into action, would have forced people to want to take that journey to the wilderness, to listen to John. It's clear he would have caused incredible excitement and anticipation. He would have stirred the hearts of the masses. He would have prompted the priests to go back and study carefully the old words of the prophecies. He really would have encouraged many to dare that the Jewish Messiah was on the way. And so he did all this. But this for me is where the story takes a stunning and wonderful turn. Because the message of Christ was so unexpected, so radical, and so paradigm changing, that many Jews were simply unable to believe that Jesus was in fact the long-awaited Messiah. So we can ask, had John prepared the way incorrectly? Well, no, in the sense that the message got through, the church is here today, it exists. So the way was prepared for Jesus to reach the hearts of the right people to make the church grow. But perhaps he hadn't prepared people well, because if he had done, why would so many have been disappointed in the words and message and actions of Jesus Christ? Don't forget that these people will be the very same people who were clamoring for his cru crucifixion maybe three years later. Something had happened to disappoint them terribly. And this is where I found a really interesting story that I hadn't realized before, because John the Baptist was arrested, which I knew, and sent to prison, which I knew, because he was too vocal in the face of the leaders. But he had his own disciples who he sent out to listen to what Jesus was saying and to report back to him. And it seems that even John the Baptist himself came to doubt that Jesus was in fact the promised Messiah. Which is an incredible message, seeing as John's life was built around revealing this, this Messiah. Because it says in the Bible, in Luke 7, chapter 18, what does it say? It says something. Oh, we go. 
I want to try and get the words right for this one. So Luke reports, although I have paraphrased it, so in some sense I'm not going to get the words exactly right. But when John was in prison, his disciples reported the words and acts of Jesus to him. So John summoned two of his disciples and sent them to the Lord to ask, are you actually the one who is to come, or are we to wait for another? That's incredible. He's gone and said, are you really Jesus, or were you just a warm fact? Were you the kind of the, the, the prelude to another person? And in some sense, the Jewish people had the same doubts. And don't forget John. There's a story where John was in the womb of Elizabeth and he leapt for joy when Jesus in the womb of Mary came nearby. His father, Zachariah, had been struck dumb by the Lord, saying that he knew that his son was going to preach great things. So John's life was leading up to him preparing the way in the wilderness. And yet somehow even John, whose faith must have been so strong, came to doubt that Jesus was in fact the Messiah he'd been waiting for. So radical and different was his message. Perhaps Judas, who betrayed Jesus, was one of those who rallied around John initially. We don't know for sure, but certainly the way Jesus came across was so unexpected, so unusual, so radical, that many people at the time simply could not accept that this was the way they were going to be saved. And it seems likely that given that John had trouble eventually believing that Jesus was the prophesied Messiah, I suspect that many of those who went to see him also had trouble <coughs> believing this. It seems likely that the message, therefore, that John gave was very different to the message that Jesus gave. John's message was largely about judgment and hellfire, whereas Jesus' message was largely about love, turning of the cheek. Jesus didn't stand in the wilderness and preach to the masses. He went to the houses. He sat with them in the temple. I feel greatly relieved by this passage because one of the atheists who were trying to discredit Christianity said this was an inconsistency in the Bible. First John's saying, you're the Lord, and then he's saying, you're really the Lord. How insane is that? And at face value, something like that might sound like a problem, but actually when you consider the description I've given now, it's actually very reasonable. And it gives a reality to the Bible, which I think, if it was invented, wouldn't have been there. There's no way somebody inventing the Bible story would have had John the Baptist saying, are you really the Messiah? Wouldn't have happened at all. It's one of the things which is so great about the Bible story. It's an account of the actions and events of people, imperfect people, people who made the wrong choices, made the wrong decisions, didn't understand things properly. This isn't, a, this isn't an account of something made up where they're trying to pretend this is all true. This is an account of something true and the imperfect way in which the people around Jesus came to bring the message forward. So John the Baptist, to me, marks a transition from the old order of the Torah and the Old Testament to the new order of Jesus and the Gospel. Because we today, unlike the person you imagined, we witness this story with the knowledge of what was to come. We've got the Gospels, we've got Acts, we've got the letters of Paul, we've even got Revelation. So should we follow the example of John or the example of Jesus? The, exam the answer to me seems completely clear. To my mind, despite many notable examples in the world, world today, Jesus doesn't need voices crying out from the wilderness. He doesn't need voices crying out from pulpits for <coughs> repentance, remote and far from people with their everyday lives and everyday troubles. 
in everyday doubts. Jesus doesn't need us to argue semantics and spend all of our time simply studying the record of the prophets and their disciples. He doesn't need us to want to learn ancient Greek so we can compare the text for ourselves. It's important that some people do this, perhaps, but this isn't the main message of what it's about. This isn't an academic discipline. It's about life. The memory verse for today clearly says that we are called to action, to do things, to help the needy, to comfort the distressed, to listen to the outcast, to, de- to befriend the lonely, to turn the other cheek, and to love our enemies and those we dislike. And we all know that people who really touch us are people who treat us in those ways, not people who preach at us or judge us. We need to be the hands and feet of Christ on earth. We need to act as he acted, not with hate or fire, but with love and prayer. Passion, sure. We need passion. But there's a difference between an aggressive passion and a passion for help people, a passion for truth and a passion for justice. This is where we overlap with so many non-believers, in the passion for justice in the world. It's a common theme which will draw people together. Instead of shouting repentance, we can shout, let's have justice for the world. The fair trade movement is a great example. It's drawn all sorts of people on board because it's addressing a need of justice in the world. It's a wonderful way to start to share the way we view the world to other people. In the time of John the Baptist, the message of Jesus was radical and unexpected. And I think John prepared the people as he had to to allow Jesus to reach his destination. Only a message from John of the, of the kind he gave would have roused the Jewish people to journey into the wilderness to hear. Only a message like John would have got people to look at the old prophecies to say, is this really going to be, come true in our lifetime? It's no, it's no coincidence that John dressed as Elijah did. He was the image of the old prophets to whom the Jews had been looking back to for salvation. But now the time was to look forward. So, I guess to conclude, I do come back to the idea of repentance, which is firmly included in the passage of John that we just read. Now, repentance isn't an apology. It's not an an acceptance that we're going to follow the law. It's not a sense that I'm never going to sin again, which is impossible. Repentance is a turning of the spirit and of the heart. It's a turning to a direction of light and truth and saying, I want to follow this. This is the way I should lead my life. I'm imperfect, sure. But a repentance is turning to these good things. It's a humbling of ourselves before Christ, if you like. A humbling from which the offer of service will naturally follow. I don't repent out of fear. I repent, in some sense, out of love. Because Jesus is the example who I wish to emulate. And I'm happy to repent and say, I aspire to follow your teachings. It will be imperfect. I'll get things wrong. I will misunderstand things. I will misread the Bible. I'll do all sorts of things wrong. But I wish to follow. And that's what true repentance is in my mind. I do believe quite strongly that we need to understand that we follow the Lord not blindly out of fear of that great day of judgment, but out of love 
and thankfulness for the peace we feel in our souls. If we really want to spread the gospel, we need to let people catch a glimpse of that still, small voice of calm that grounds us all. The still, small voice which becomes apparent after searching. The still, small voice which is free to all, ever-present and eternal.